I'm going to read in Igbo. Ndichinke oga mereka aya nke uche nke ndi nekweye kwe boisi nititi ha ka iye ihe nke oziama nke ebube Christ onye bu oyiyo chineke we wegara igwe wegara iwakwasi ha nihi na obui anyi onwanyi ka inekusa kama obu Christ Jesus na obu onye nwanyi anyi na asikwa na anyi onwanyi bu ndi uno nihi Jesus nihi na obu chineke onye siri ihege sini ma ochichiri nwuputa bu onye wubara ni ime obi anyi iweta iye ihe nke omuma nke ebube nke chineke niru nke Jesus ma anyi were akwa nite aja ka okika nke ike ahu weburu nke chineke garakwa isite na anyi onwai nka boku nke chineke this is the word of the lord amen so this is interpretation of what you heard in ibo so I'm going to read um, from the children's Bible, again, 2 Corinthians 4, 4 to 7. The devil who rules this world has blinded the minds of those who do not believe. They cannot see the light of the good news, the good news about the glory of Christ, who is exactly like God. We, need, we do not preach about ourselves, but we preach that Jesus is Lord, and we preach that we are your servants for Jesus. God once said, let the light shine out of the darkness. And this is the same God who made his light shine in our hearts. He gave us light by letting us know the glory of God that is in the face of Christ. We have this treasure from God we are only like clays that hold the treasure. This shows that this great power is from God, not from us. This is the word of the Lord. My name is uh, Ryan Hanna, and uh, 23 years ago, this coming Tuesday, uh, my wife Heidi and I were sent out from uh, the Calvary Memorial Church as missionaries. Uh, we have three children. And just as of August, we are empty nesters. They are all off uh, university or, or graduated now. Um, it's fine. You need to put it into play mode, I think, maybe. Um, I want to just draw your attention to a couple of things, though. Uh, this morning, one of the points I'm going to be talking about is prayer and the importance of prayer in the work of missions. And uh, there's two things that can help us with that. Uh, one of them is the book that many of you should have received last week. If you didn't receive one, uh, there are still some outside. You can grab one of them. In here are profiles of all of the missionaries that uh, Calvary supports. I would encourage you to take one, uh, read it, but then also pray through it. Make it a, a regular part of your habit to pray through uh, this booklet. In the hallway, um, heading off and toward the, the dining rooms and so forth, there are also cards there that you can grab and just gives a summary of what different missionaries are doing in the world that Calvary has sent out. The 
uh, I don't think I can overemphasize the importance of prayer in the work of missions. Uh, if you're not sure how to pray, uh, if you, when you go out the door here, there's also a table there, and we have some uh, brochures called Praying for uh, Mission Workers. And in there, there's some points that can help you uh, to know how to intelligently pray for, for missionaries. Uh, sometimes it's, it's easy, perhaps, for us to sort of say, well, God bless the missionaries, but we don't really know beyond that uh, what, to, what to say. And so this gives us some pointers to, to help along with that. Um, let's pray together. Our Father God, as we come to you now, we just ask that you would help us to quiet our minds. We ask that you would quiet our hearts. The things that outside of here might be distracting us, we ask that those would uh, go. We ask that uh, you would open up our hearts to hear from you this morning. We ask that your uh, spirit would be deeply sensed here, that we would know that your presence is here among us, that you are working that you are speaking to us. I pray for the words that I say, that they will glorify you, and um, that we will leave here um, ready to continue to serve you, perhaps in, in new ways. Uh, we'll leave here changed uh, from the way we were when we came in. We ask this all in your name. Amen. Jesus spent three years with his disciples. And during those three years, he did a lot of things with them, I uh, spent a lot of time with them. Uh, they traveled together. They stayed together. They ate together. Jesus taught them. Sometimes he had to rebuke them. He did many things as he spent time with them. He challenged them. And then he was taken away from them. He was crucified. But he didn't stay dead. He rose again. And he came back and he met his disciples again and he continued to instruct them for those few weeks that he was still there. And then he gave them his final instructions. We have the Great Commission, the final instructions from Christ. We all know the Great Commission. We're all familiar with the Great Commission. It's in all four of the Gospels in different forms. And then we, we come to the book of Acts. Christ, just before he goes up to heaven, he says, you'll receive power. And after that, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. Missions was at the very core of the early church. If we think about the time of the early church, the majority of the 12 disciples went out as missionaries to different parts of the world. If we think about our Bible, the New Testament that we have, we will see that the majority of the letters were written by the Apostle Paul, who was a missionary from the church. If we look at Mark and Luke, who went together with Paul, who were uh, his colleagues as missionaries together with him. They wrote the Gospels of Mark and Luke and the entire book of Acts. So the entire New Testament was written in the context of missions. And as people went out taking this gospel message, this final command of Christ was taken very, very seriously. It was at the very center of the church. So a question I'd like for us to think about this morning as we talk about our engagement in global missions, a question that I want us to ask ourselves is, do we still see missions as central to the church? Do we still see it as core? Do we still see the evangelization of folks who do not know Christ, whether it be locally or globally, as one of our core activities? And beyond that, are we engaged in ways that promote the training and sending of new missionaries? And are we supporting and praying for our existing 
missionaries? Do we know our missionaries well enough to intelligently pray for them? Are we praying to the God of the nations to work in the hearts of people who don't yet know him, of people who maybe haven't even heard about God? So these are a few of the questions I'd like us to be reflecting on as we think about our engagement with the global uh, missions movement that is going on, things for us to reflect on. We'll come back to these questions at the end of this time. When Calvary started sending out missionaries, Johnny mentioned last week that uh, it was at the very beginning of the church here, the church started sending out missionaries. That was well over 100 years ago. The context since that time has pretty radically changed. In 1900, when Calvary first started sending out missionaries, 80% of the Christians in the world lived in either the United States or Europe. But today, things have radically changed. In fact, as of next year, 66% of the Christians in the world will live outside of Europe and the United States. And so the epicenter of Christianity has moved. And with the changes of global Christianity, the makeup of the global missionary force is also rapidly changing. In 2010, the top 20 countries that were sending out missionaries, of those top 20 countries, nine of them were from the majority world. Uh, the majority world sometimes is referred to as the global south or um, the two-thirds world. Um, but these countries, such as Brazil, South Korea, India, South Africa, the Philippines, Mexico, China, Colombia, and Nigeria are now sending out many, many missionaries along with a lot of other countries. And so it is changing the dynamics of the way missions is happening. These new missionaries are very similar but also different from the existing missionaries or the missionaries that have been sent out for a long time. They're very similar in that they have a passion to see Jesus Christ made known amongst the nations. But they're different in their backgrounds. They're different in their perspectives. Sometimes they're different in the kinds of resources they bring. Some of them have been shaped by persecution, war, colonialization, the effects of colonialization, and political instability. Some of them have grown up with worldviews that significantly add to our understanding of missions and the way to approach different people groups. Some of them have passports that allow them to enter into countries that missionaries from the more traditional sending countries can't have access to. And so things are changing. I believe it's a very, very exciting time. I believe as the different members of the global body of Christ bring together their unique gifts and attributes to bear for the sake of the kingdom, I find it very exciting. 1 Corinthians 12, 13, Paul says that we were all baptized into one body, Jew or Greek, slave or free. And then he continues on in the passage talking about the diversity of the members of the body and how they function together. He says that no one part should look down upon another part. He also says that no one part should feel inferior to another part. But they are to work together. And I believe that as we tap into the broad gifting of the global body of Christ, we will see the gospel move forward in ways that we never imagined before. In Thailand, we're beginning to experience some of the blessing of the globalization of missions on our team. This picture here is uh, a picture of our team taken in July, just a few months ago. Uh, our team is made up of about 60 uh, missionaries and staff. 
About half of them come from what I call the traditional sending countries. About half of them are from new areas. And so we have been blessed in many significant ways. We've been blessed by our colleagues from Northeast India who thrive as church planting. The funding for their missionary movement began with the wives within the church of Northeast India. They said, we want to send out missionaries. And so what they did, every time they made a meal, they would take a handful of rice. They would gather it up and put it into a bucket. They made the next meal, they take the next, and so on and so forth. And then they would bring all the rice together, they would take it to the church, and then they would sell it. And this is how they began to fund their mission movement. Their cultural nearness to the Thai gave them an advantage in navigating some of the different cultural issues that exist in Thailand. I remember talking to one of my colleagues, Rena, and how he had managed a discussion at one of the new church plants. They were having a discussion about where should we meet. And he navigated this sensitive issue about where to meet in a really different way than I would have managed the discussion, but he managed to do it in such a way that nobody lost face, which is a big issue in Thailand. And so after Rena had explained to me everything that happened, I said to Rena, who taught you how to do that that way? And he said to me, this is just the way we would have done things back home. He said, face is a big issue where I come from in Northeast India, and so this is what I do naturally. And so I've been learning a lot of things from Rena as he shares with me on how to navigate some of these kinds of issues. We've also been blessed by our Thai colleagues. We've begun training and sending uh, Thai as missionaries. And last year we sent out our first uh, family to a, a country that is nearby to Thailand where missionaries cannot enter. As they went in there, they undertook language learning. And in four months, they had arrived at language level two. Now, language level two is called two because it takes a typical foreigner coming in two years to achieve that language level. But they had passed it within four months because their language is very near to the language that they were studying. And so they had an advantage to be able to engage into the work quicker than if they had come from a different place. Because of the relationships between Thailand and the country they're in, uh, they can also move around much more freely. If I was to work there, my movements would be restricted. There are certain places I couldn't go, certain places I can't live. But because of the relationships between Thailand and their country, they can move around freely. We're being prepared to also be blessed by Ethiopian colleagues. Next year, we plan to receive two families from the Kalahewit Church. Uh, this is a denomination that SIM planted about 90 uh, years ago. This denomination has grown to around 8 million members now. And as they uh, passed through the years of the 70s and 80s during the time of the dirge, which was the, the name of the uh, group that was ruling at that time, they underwent severe persecution. The dirge suppressed and uh, persecuted the entire church. There are many uh, leaders within the church today that still have literal scars on their back from beatings that they received in persecution. This trial and testing, though, of the church has brought within them a fearlessness and evangelism that you rarely see. It has given them uh, unshakable faith from the things that they have passed through. So in May, when I was in Ethiopia... I went there, I met with uh, the potential families that were going to be coming, and met with the church leaders. As I met with the head of the denomination, uh, they told us plans that they have within the next eight years to send out 3,000 international missionaries. And so things are changing. Things are changing very quickly. We're also being blessed with some unique opportunities because of our 
diversity. In July, we had a leadership training uh, with some of our missionaries. And at the end of the time, we said, hey, let's go have a meal together. So we found a restaurant. We, we went there and ate. And while we were eating, the owners of the restaurant were watching us. We didn't know it, but they were watching us very carefully. And when Dream, who's our Thai sending coordinator, went to go pay the bill, they said, hey, do you mind if we take a picture of you guys? I said, that's fine. But then they said, who are you? Like, all of you guys, you obviously, many of you are from different places. You speak different languages, but you also speak Thai. Like, what, what is this thing that has brought you together? And so Dream was able to tell them, well, it, it's, it's Christ that has brought us together. And she had an opportunity just to share briefly with them about uh, what it is that brings us together, what it is that unifies us. And so we've had some unique opportunities just in our own diversity and moving and working together as a group to share the gospel. I have to tell the truth, alongside these blessings, there's also challenges. Um, the potential for cross-cultural conflict increases as we increase the numbers of cultures that come together to work together. And so we need to cultivate a culture within our teams of grace, of extending grace to one another and to be continually learning from one another and one another's cultures. Not all the missionaries that are going out from these uh, newer sending contexts are going out with traditional mission organizations. Some of them are starting new mission organizations. Some of them are going out independently. And so it creates some other challenges just in terms of partnership and in communication and in coordination of the work. But I believe that the blessings far, far outweigh the challenges that exist. So let's ask ourselves, how should we function within this different context? How should we function in this new reality? How should we approach missions as Calvary Memorial Church? How do we respond to the decreased percentage of American missionaries in comparison to the other countries of the world? How do we respond to the increased complexity that comes with so many cultures trying to strive together for the fulfillment of the Great Commission? I think we can get some direction from Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, which was read for us not very long ago. As we read 2 Corinthians, we find that opponents of the Apostle Paul are trying to undermine his work. They claim, amongst other things, that Paul, his suffering, is proof or evidence that he's not a true apostle. In response, Paul asserts that his suffering is not evidence that he's not an apostle. Rather, it points to his dependence on Christ and his dependence on the need for Christ to move the work forward. He needs to depend on Christ's strength. As we move into chapter 4, Paul has just finished talking about the Jews and how there had been a veil between them and the law of Moses. Paul says that their minds had been hardened and they had lacked understanding. It was only when they turned to the Lord that that veil was removed. And now uh, their eyes had been opened and those who had come to Christ were being transformed through the Spirit. And so as we come into chapter 4, verse 3, Paul returns to this theme of the veil, and he says, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. This brings us to our passage for today. I'm going to read it once more so it's fresh in our mind as I talk about it. Verse 4, he says, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of the darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. 
But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. I think there are three things that we can take from this passage which relate to global missions. The first one is that mankind has been made blind to the gospel. Verse, par, verse 4, Paul says that the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbeliever. So while Satan was defeated on the cross, he still works to blind, to confuse, and distract those who don't yet know God. I think there's many kinds of blindness to the gospel in this world. A major source of blindness in much of Europe and the U.S. and many of the global urban centers is pluralism. Philosophical modernism of the early 1900s, working together with a scientific worldview, put forward that the only truth that we can be sure of is discoverable via science. It was supposed that beliefs about the transcendental, or the transcendent, excuse me, belong in the realm of opinion or personal experience because they can't be scientifically proven. And so many Christians feared that this uh, chipping away would bring in atheism as the adherents of this scientific uh, worldview were chipping away at the question of, does God even exist? But what actually happened, rather than atheism coming in, is that once the scientific worldview was done with chipping away at the belief of God, it was found to be empty. And so, because the scientific method does not deal with issues of the deeper longings, the pains, the desires that linger after scientific theories have reached their limits. But society, rather than returning to the God of Christianity, has chosen to remain in the space of being unsure about the transcendent or the supernatural. And so what we've been left with is, is pluralism, which suggests that all beliefs about the transcendent are, are equally valid. This kind of thinking has also made its way into the church. Many Christians today are less confident to share their faith. They're afraid that they might be perceived as intolerant, extreme, imposing their faith on other people. And so what we're left with is we're left with a form of Christianity that loves Jesus and believes that its end goal is individual well-being and happiness. To assert anything more than that begins to impose on the belief systems of other people. Contrary to this concept or idea that faith is just a private issue, Jesus commissioned the church to go out to take the gospel. If we believe the gospel is true, sharing it with others should just be an automatic response to our own finding faith in God. Scientific worldview also had significant impact on missions, especially missionaries coming from the West. The scientific worldview caused Christians to doubt the existence of an active spirit world. And this resulted in the exportation of a kind of Christianity that was unable to deal with the real-world problems of many of the people groups that were becoming Christian. And so what happened was Christianity seemed to be only dealing with the physical world and the afterlife and the concerns of many people of how to deal with the spirit world with which there was so much interaction, they felt like there was no response. And so what this resulted in was people coming to church on Sunday, but then Monday when their child became sick or they had some other kind of problem, they would seek a response from the spirit world. They would go to the witch doctor or, or other places to find help in that area. Because our Christianity did not adequately address these issues. Missiologist Paul Hebert called this problem 
the excluded middle. We were only dealt with the physical things. We dealt with the afterlife. We didn't deal with these middle things. I think this is another area that the globalization of missions assists the spread of Christianity. Christians from backgrounds that have a more experienced theology in the spirit world, as they join in, I believe they will be helping the overall mission force. When I was talking to one of my Ethiopian, uh, the missionaries that will be coming next year, his name is Zeleke. I talked to him about joining the team. He shared with me that his father, although he was a Muslim, he was very, very involved in uh, spiritism and, and the rituals that required for the community, since he's a community leader. And so Zeleke told me that when his father eventually became a Christian, one of the first things they had to do was to deal with all of this sort of baggage that, that came along with that. And so it was just part of a normal discipleship process for him with his father in dealing with these kinds of things. And so I believe that many of the missionaries coming from the majority world who have dealt with these kinds of issues on a regular basis will help as they have already dealt with many of these kinds of things in their home countries. Another kind of blindness is distraction of daily life, the pursuit of wealth. Many people are just very busy with life. Uh, they're just kind of getting through their everyday tasks, getting through the everyday challenges, these bigger questions about God. People often think, well, I'll deal with that one day. I'll deal with that when life slows down. And so it's just left. Other people are blinded by a thought that those things are too complicated. I'm not even sure where to begin tackling those things. And so I just ignore those bigger questions and, and push them off somewhere. The God of this world has also blinded many people through other religions and other belief systems. As long as men and women believe in something else, they will not pursue a relationship with the true God. In verse 6, Paul says that God has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. So we need the light of the revelation from God to help remove our blindness and this is the work of the Spirit, as the Spirit works in the lives of men and of women to open up their spiritual eyes so that they might have understanding. God uses many different ways to reveal himself. It may be through a friend. It may be through a colleague. It may be through somebody we meet. Uh, it may be through a story. Uh, that's how it was for uh, Dewan. Dewan is a lady who lives in the northeast part of Thailand. She was met by a Christian named Ni. And one day, Ni and Dewan met on the bus, and they began talking, and they were heading to the hospital together. And as they talked, they found out that both of them have very similar lives. And so Ni has eye problems. Dewan has eye problems. Ni has certain kinds of problems in her family, and so did Dewan. And so as they began to talk, eventually Ni told her, she said, you know, I'm a Christian. And she said, since I've become a Christian, I'm much happier. I have deep joy. And she said, even some of my, my health issues have, have improved as well. And so as they kept talking... Uh, Dewan invited Ni over to her house to learn about Jesus. And so Ni began to go over to Dewan's house. She took a couple of our missionaries with her and they began talking about God. And, and um, for about three months, they continued talking. But as they had these conversations with Dewan, when they said, hey, would you like to come to church next week? Or uh, kind of where are you at in terms of would you like to have a relationship with God? Dewan always said, I'm not ready. I'm not quite ready. So they just kept talking. So they kept talking until one day when Ni read the story of the prodigal son. And so as Ni read the story, Dewan became very intent in listening. And then she began just crying. And 
they weren't quite sure what happened. When Ni nee finished the story, Dewan said, can I, can, I, can I read that for myself? And so she takes the, the book and she began to read the story for herself. And then she said, do you mind if I keep this? I said, no, that's fine. You, you can borrow it. And so after they left, uh, the next time they got together, Dewan had been reading that story over and over and over to the point that she had memorized it. And she began to explain to them. She said, this story? She said, I was crying because this is my story. This is my story. She said, I once had so much. She said, I, I, I got married to a man who was very rich. I had a lot of things. I left him for another man who was even richer and had even more. But then he cheated on me, and so I left him. And when I went back to my hometown, the land that I belonged to me had been sold. And I was left with absolutely nothing. There was no way I could reclaim that land. She said, I was so destitute, at one point, I ended up feeding the pigs, and I remember being jealous of the food of the pigs. Not long after this, Dewan chose to follow Christ. She called her children, and she told them, she said, I am becoming a Christian. No matter what you say, it will not change my mind. Now, this is significant in Thai culture, because in Thai culture, children are obligated to care for their parents. And so, as you get older, every month, your child will send you some money to help care for you. It is not abnormal when older people come to Christ that their children tell them, if you become a Christian, I am cutting you off. And so, for Dewan to tell this to her children, regardless of what happens, I am not changing my mind. She has made a strong stand. I am following Christ. Now, she talks about Jesus all the time as she meets people. First thing she says is, did you know that my story is in the Bible? Let me, let me share it with you. I think the second thing that we can see from this passage is that Christ is the complete revelation of God's glory. In verse 4, Paul says that Christ is the image of God. Then in verse 6, he says that for those who believe God has given the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. In other words, we can see or know the glory of God through Christ. Commentator Scott Haifman notes the following. He says, the description that Paul uses in verse 4-4 to depict the glory of God now being veiled from those who are perishing is one of the most important Christological statements in the New Testament. Since in the Old Testament, the concept of an image can never be understood without a connotation, excuse me, a physical presentation, representation. The concept of Christ as the image of God clearly conveys the sense that Christ is the visible manifestation of the invisible God. Now, for most of us, images are not a part of our daily life. This is not the case in Thailand. Thailand is full of religious images. If you go to the temples, you'll find them full of, of statues and religious images. If you go into a Thai Buddhist house, you will find an altar, typically, that also has images on it, uh, respecting the spirits. Outside of the house, there will be a spirit house doing the same thing. Uh, when you go into a business, a Thai Buddhist business, you will also find an altar there with images on it there to respect the spirits. There are strict laws in Thailand considering, uh, concerning images. And part of the thinking is, is that they view that those things are not just objects, but they actually have the spirit of the thing that they represent in them. So there are strict laws. You're not allowed to buy or sell religious images. You're not allowed to destroy or deface religious images. This thinking 
about images is similar to the understanding of the New Testament world. And so when Paul said that Christ is the image of God, his audience would have understood that he meant that Christ represents God and was one in the same with God. The third thing we can take from this passage is that the message is superior to the messengers. Verse 5, Paul tells the Corinthians that he and the ones with him saw themselves as servants. So Paul, the best known, most celebrated missionary of the early church, knew the power of the gospel. He knew it on multiple levels. He knew the power of the gospel to transform a life. He himself, who had been a persecutor of the Christian church, became one of the main leaders in the church and the main missionary. He knew how radically it could transform a life. Paul had performed many miracles. He knew the power of the gospel through the miracles he had performed. It caused him to not shy away from alternative views or alternative religions. He proclaimed that Jesus was the only way to have a relationship with God. And he was bold. But in that boldness, he wasn't arrogant. Rather, he was humble. He saw himself as a servant. He knew that the proclamation of the gospel was not about Paul, but it was about God. In verse 7, Paul says that we have the treasure of the gospel in jars of clay to show that the power of the gospel belongs to God and not Paul or his fellow ministers. So Paul uses this idea of a clay pot to represent himself. I have a clay pot here. It's uh, similar to the types that they would have used uh, during uh, the time of Paul. A lot of times they were bigger they weren't always quite glazed like this, but they were a very basic clay uh, thing that you would have found throughout the ancient world at that time. They were made for the purpose primarily of storing things or, or carrying things. So, but I think there's three aspects related to uh, clay jars that are relevant to what Paul is saying here. First, uh, clay jars are fragile. If I was to pick this jar up and just sort of toss it onto the ground, it would break into a lot of pieces. It, it's fragile. Uh, clay jars with time, they also crack. They're not a very durable thing. They're also common. Uh, clay pots at that time were extremely common. They were in abundance. They were not considered a thing of beauty. They didn't compare to the Greek urns of the time or of the uh, bronze vessels that some would have had or of the goblets that would have been inlaid with, with gold. They were just very common. The third thing about clay jars is that they're expendable. They had no enduring value. They were so cheap that if somebody broke one, they wouldn't bother to try and mend it. Uh, this was unlike glass at the time. If glass broke, you would melt it down and make something new. If you had something of bronze or silver or gold and it became damaged, you could build it down, break, uh, melt it down and reuse it. But with a clay jar, once it breaks, you, you just dispose of it. There's no, no sense in keeping it. Once it was hardened in a kiln, it was non-recyclable. So clay pots were not special. In fact, that which the earthen vessel contained was the only thing that gave it value. If it had oil, if it had wine, whatever it was, that was actually the thing that was value, not the container itself. And so Paul uses this idea to emphasize that the messenger is not of value compared to the message. Paul saw himself only as a simple vessel carrying a priceless message. And that is true today. As we go out to share the gospel, the emphasis is not on us. The emphasis is on the message. And like Paul, 
We are to see ourselves as servants to the people that we seek to reach and to do so in humility. And so as we think through this passage we've looked at, as we come back to our question of how should we as Calvary Memorial Church engage in global missions given the current realities, let's think about this for a few minutes. Firstly, I think we need to recognize ourselves as a part of the global church. This first point is about our perspective and, and how do we see ourselves. For the last 200 years, the Western church has had the dominant role in global missions. But as the global church has grown increasingly engaged in missions, the Western church has sometimes seen itself as still having the primary role. Instead of that, we need to see ourselves as a part of the global church. We're in coming amongst equals to work together for the kingdom of God. On the other side of the spectrum of thinking, some have suggested that the Western church has grown too apathetic, indifferent, or embroiled in our own cultural conflicts to continue to make an impact for the gospel. They suggest that the baton be passed. Just pass on the baton to the rest of the global church and we'll finish the task. I don't like this analogy of, of, of passing a baton uh, for a couple reasons. To start with, the Western church never owned the gospel. The gospel is God's. Secondly, I don't believe that the Great Commission is something to be handed around. I believe that the Great Commission is a core piece of what it means to be the church. And so every church should be striving to see it fulfilled, regardless of where that church is located. I prefer the analogy of, of joining hands rather than passing a baton. If we can join hands with the rest of the global church and bring in the gifts, the talents, the resources, the different ways that God has equipped us for the Great Commission, I believe as each part brings to bear all of the resources that they have, we will see significant progress in the gospel going forward. My second application point on this is that we need to work from a place of humility. So the second part is about our attitude. The first is about our perspective. The second part is about our attitude and how do we engage in missions. The same way that Paul saw himself as a servant, I think we also need to say, see ourselves as servant. And in the same way that Paul saw himself as a simple vessel with a very sacred message, we also need to see ourselves as stewarding an all-important, all-powerful message that is the most important thing that mankind knows. And so as we go out joining into God's global movement, let us go out with humility. I think we need to go out with many kinds of humility. We need to go out with personal humility. We need to go out with cultural humility. We need to go out with financial humility. And this doesn't always come naturally sometimes. Sometimes some of the places we go, they give us preference. It may be because of our background. It may be our education. It may be our passport. It may be access to resources. And so these things don't always come naturally. But even if we are given preference, we still need to make sure that we take on a posture of humility and a posture of learning. It can also be difficult sometimes because we go out to tell. We have a message to tell. And so sometimes we get into a mode of, of telling. And so we tell the message, but we tell a lot of other things. Sometimes when we're telling, we should actually be sitting down and listening. And so we need to go out ready to humbly engage with others and to learn. The third thing that comes from this is that we need to send missionaries to the globe. With the globalization of missions, some have suggested that it is no longer necessary to send American missionaries. They suggest that American missionaries are 
too expensive, and it would be more economically judicious to only finance missionaries from countries that require less finances. However, the Great Commission was a command that was given to the whole church, and we all need to play our part. It's not good enough for us to just simply send our money and believe that we have fulfilled our role. The Great Commission also requires that we send some of our friends. It requires that we send some of our families. It requires that we send some of our sons and some of our daughters. I also want to encourage us to think more about the unreached. There's a new statistic that came out. This is not a Facebook statistic. This is from the Center for the Study of Global Christianity. 86% of Muslims, Hindus, and Buddhists do not know one Christian. So let's think about this for a minute. If you don't know a Christian, if you don't know one Christian, what is the likelihood of you ever hearing the gospel? Very minimal. And even at that, if you did hear the gospel, out of what context would you consider it? If you've never seen how a Christian lives, if you've never seen how a Christian treats their family, if you've never seen how a Christian treats their colleagues and their neighbors, how do you know even to consider this message even have any validity? And so I'd like us to think about that as we send out missionaries. We need to continue to send missionaries to many, many places. But I would encourage us to think especially about those places where people have no access to the gospel. Lastly, I want to encourage us to pray. One of the most important aspects of mission work is prayer. It's something that all of us can do. Not everybody can, can travel and learn languages, and uh, not everyone has the financial resources to, to give. But whatever role you may be wanting to see, if there's a barrier there, I can't think of any barrier that can prevent us from praying. It's something that we can all be involved in doing. So I would encourage us to, to pray. We can ask the Spirit of God to open up the hearts and the minds of the people who do not know him. The importance of this uh, was recently uh, driven home to me as um, in some of the work that's going on in Thailand. Um, sometimes when I look at the numbers of Thailand, we're 94% Buddhist, we're 5% Muslim, uh, we're only one half, 1% Christian. And as I look at some districts, sub-districts where there's no church, there's no known Christian, uh, you, can, you can get a little bit discouraged sometimes. And um, one of the things that I can do, though, is, is pray. And so we pray for God to open up the hearts and minds of people and to work. Matthew 17, 20 says, For truly I say to you that if you have faith like a grain of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. So we just need a little bit of faith. Thinking of this, I want you to take a, a trip with me to Thailand in your mind's eye. I want you to go to the northeast part of Thailand called Isan, and there I want you to travel with me to the province of, of Chayapum. And in the province of Chayapum, I want you to meet a lady named Sao. Now, Sao <clears throat> is somebody whose story doesn't begin with her. It actually begins with somebody else whose name is Dang. Dang is a believer from a recent church plant. She's very faithful in her evangelism, and she decided that she needed to find an opportunity to talk to Sao. But every time she met Sao and said, can I come to your house, 
Sal had an excuse as to why she wouldn't go, uh, why uh, Don couldn't go. <clears throat> so eventually, Don being the kind of person she is, she just went to Sal's house. <laughs> she began meeting with Sal. And so she began talking with Sal about many things, but every time the conversation turned towards God, Sal wasn't interested. She wasn't interested until one day that Dong sang a song. Now, I don't know about you, when you go out to talk to people about God and Jesus, what you have in your evangelism repertoire, I don't know if it contains any songs, but mine doesn't. If I was talking to somebody and I just started singing a song to them, uh, they'd probably run away from me. <laughs> but Dong sang a song. She sang a song uh, that really got uh, Sal's attention. Uh, it's called Jong Mi Kwam Chin I Praong which means you need to have belief in God. And in this song, it talks about faith that can move mountains. It talks about a God who can turn evil into good. It talks about a God who can do miraculous things. And so when Dong finished singing this song, Sal said to her, she said, this God that you said that can move mountains, um, can you, who is this God? Tell me more about this God. And so Sal be, uh, Dong began to talk to Sal about God. She invited uh, two of our missionaries, Rina and Pui, uh, who I mentioned earlier, um, to go and talk together with, with Sal. And so they spent time talking with Sal, and as well as her husband, Woot. And within the period of a few weeks, both Sal and Woot decided to give their lives to Christ. They were baptized, and Rina and Pui and Dong continued to meet with her and uh, her husband, Woot, and continued to uh, disciple them. As they were talking through different things in discipleship, one day it came up, Sal said, I have some images in my house that uh, I'd like to get rid of, but I'm, I'm afraid to get rid of them. She said, Rena and Pui, would you come to my house and would you, would you pray with us uh, before we get rid of these things? And so Rena and Pui said, sure, we can, we're happy to do that. And so they tried to make an appointment to go to the house and do this. Um, but what happened is each time they made an appointment, something happened. And so five times something happened. They couldn't, couldn't meet together. Uh, one time her uh, son was arrested. Uh, one time they had to go bail him out. One time another family member fell sick. They, they just couldn't get together. So around this time, I, I traveled out to, to Isan as the director for, for the mission there. I go out and, and visit our folks uh, regularly. And so we got, went to um, Chayapum where they're at. And so Rina said to me, hey, would you like to go out and meet some of our members and some of the newer people who've come to Christ? And I said, sure. So we got in the van and we were around visiting people. And we came to Sao and Woot's house. And so uh, we got out of the car and we went in. Uh, Sao was not there, but, but Woot was there. And so we sat down and had a long conversation with Woot. Later on, Rena told me, he said, that's the first long conversation I've ever had with Woot. He said, anytime him and Sao are together, Sao does all the talking. So... <laughs> I don't know how your marital relationships are, but sometimes those kinds of things happen. But we, so we had this long conversation with Woot, and as we're talking, eventually the conversation came around to these, to these images, and Woot had a lot of questions. Um, he said, uh, as he began to explain things, but as I listened, uh, and as Rena listened, we realized, oh, these aren't just any images. Sal has actually been a, a medium. She's been a medium for many, many years. And so... 
uh, Woot took us into the house to, to the altar and, and he said, he explained to us, he said, you know, every time that there's a full moon, quarter moon, half moon, uh, my wife would sit and she would chant and the spirit would come into her. And he showed us a knife. He said, uh, we would use this knife here. You could strike her with the knife and nothing would happen to her. It was this sign that the spirit was within her. And then she could tell fortunes. She could tell people how to be healed of certain things. And uh, people would come and get advice from her. Uh, he said, but now that she's uh, a Christian, she doesn't invite the spirit to come into her. Uh, but he explained, there's other things happening. There's other questions. He said, well, why, if she's a Christian, why, why does she still see so many spirits? And, and so we spent time talking with him and explaining things. And then we spent a lot of time praying. Um, we, we began praying that uh, they would have release from bondage of, of these spirits. We asked for God to protect their house, God to protect their family. We prayed that they would not be bothered by any of these spirits any longer. And then we prayed and asked that they would have the courage to get rid of these things. And so two weeks later, uh, Rena was waiting for uh, Sal and Woot to come to church, uh, but they never came. And so he was a little disappointed. He's wondering what, what, is, what has happened. And so uh, he went and visited them. And when he went and visited them, he had a conversation with both Sal and Woot, but again, Sal did most of the talking. Um, and Sal, uh, they said, hey, why weren't you at church? And so Sal explained. She said, well, we got up Sunday morning, and we were around, and I said to Woot, I said, uh, let's get ready to go to church. And Woot confronted her. He said, what good is it? He said, why, why should we be going to church when we still have all of these things here in our house? What good is it? And so Sal thought for a minute, and she said, okay, we don't have to work today. Let's go ahead and get rid of these things. So they gathered up all those things and got rid of them. Sal continued to explain to Rena, she said, you know, uh, in the way that I understand things, I was supposed to pass the spirit on to another relative. The spirit was passed down through the generations to me. I was supposed to pass it off to someone. I tried to give it to my sister. But when I did that and I came home, I was struck with severe headaches. And so I went back and I got that image. I brought it back into my house. And she said, the spirit appeared to me and begged not to go. And so she said, I've been afraid. But then she said, I encouraged myself with the fact that the God who is the creator of heaven and earth is greater and more powerful than any spirit or object which has been created. She said, I will not pass the spirit on to anyone. This will stop with me regardless of what happens. The story doesn't even stop there. More recently, Sal has been reaching out to a friend, Noy, uh, Many years ago, Noi had tried to commit suicide, and Sal and her brother had pulled her out of the pond that she had thrown herself into. At that time, they helped her in the way that they, they knew. They set up a spirit house. They asked for a spirit to come and be there. And that spirit has been part of Noi's life now for a very long time. And so Sal, because she helped Noi become attached to the spirit, she feels a deep, deep burden to help Noi now find release from that. Noi has not yet chosen to follow Christ. I'd ask you to pray with us about that. Sal and Woot are the kinds of people who live and die without an opportunity to hear the gospel. Before this story, they had never heard of Jesus. They had never heard of the creator God who wants to have a relationship with them.
this should bother us. This should bother us really deeply. I'd ask you to pray. Pray that God would work in the hearts of people who don't know him, that he would be drawing people to him. Pray that God will raise up Christians. Pray that God will raise up missionaries to go and take the gospel where there is no witness. I'd ask you to pray again. Pray for your missionaries. You don't know what they're going through necessarily. Pray for them. Get in contact with them. Ask them how things are going, what's going on. How can we pray for you? So I want to come back to my starting questions. Do we still see missions and evangelism as core activities of Calvary Memorial Church? Are we engaged in ways that promote the continued sending of new missionaries locally and globally, as well as continue to pray and support those who we've sent? How well do we know our missionaries? Do we know them well enough to intelligently pray for them? And are we praying to the God of the nations to work in the hearts of people who don't know him, to work in the hearts of people who need to go and to share that message. Speaking of prayer, let's, let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, Lord and God, God of the nations, God who created mankind, Mankind who thought for himself he had a better idea walked away from you. But you made a way. You sent your only son Christ here to live amongst us, to experience life in the same way that we do, and then to die on behalf of all of us. We thank you for that salvation. We thank you for this message that we have held in just frail jars of clay. We know we can't have success on our own. It's not our power. It's the power of your gospel. We're just your servants going out, telling another person where they can find the gospel, how they can be saved, how they can have a relationship with God, how they can have wholeness. We pray that you will put it heavy on our hearts to share the gospel with our friends, with our colleagues, with our family members, so that they too might have this relationship with you. Pray that you help us to be faithful in the sending and supporting of missionaries to those who don't know you. I ask all this in your name. Amen.